ask you something. What makes an athlete, let's say football, since we're in football season, what makes a football player an outstanding football player? Training, what was it I heard? Desire for, for the game. Discipline, desire, practice. Performance. <laughs> outstanding. Those are qualities, those are things that you think of when you hear the, the word outstanding. So what would make a coach an outstanding coach? If he plays for the New, New England Patriot. No. <laughs> um, the same thing, right? A desire. A willingness to what? What, what do they do? A person that's outstanding, I mean, how do you get to that point? How do you get to that level? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. What makes a worker on the job an outstanding worker? Dependability. Faithfulness. Willing to go the extra mile. Being there. And so really we find all these Principles work the same way. What makes a gardener a good gardener? You know, an outstanding gardener. You know, and they grow the best uh, crops or best okra tomatoes and all that, a green thumb. <laughs> but they know something, they, and they, they work with it. They stay with it, right? There's a desire to do that. What makes uh, someone that barbecues a good barbecue-er <laughs> practice and... Uh, just dedication. All of it is, it's learning. It's learning and then believing that and, and doing it and going the extra mile, not giving up. So what makes a Christian an outstanding Christian? Desire, dedication, performance, obedience. Same thing, right? But why is it we always put those things we look at for it in athletes or coaches or a business, you know, person or a CEO or this or that, but we don't bring it down. We kind of hold those up on a level up here. We don't bring it down to us. See, God wants you to be outstanding. He, he didn't create any junk. He created winners, not wieners. He created victors, not victims. And he wants you to be outstanding I want us to turn to, to Matthew's gospel today in chapter 14. It's a real familiar passage of scripture, or the story is definitely familiar. But I want us to, to peel back a little bit and take a look at it a little closer. Take a little closer look and maybe don't point the finger at somebody else, but back to us and say, what can I get out of this? And see, with as many of us that are here today, each one of us can get something different from this. That's because the application, the Word of God is alive, it says. It's quick, meaning alive. It's powerful, and it divides the soul and the spirit. So it comes in, and it cuts, and, it, and, and right between our, where our mind, our will, and our emotion is, it goes into our spirit to energize and, and to repower our spirit and to give our spirit man something, some strength that's necessary. And I'm praying that you get something from this today, and I'm praying God will help me Make it as simple as possible. Because he said, you know, that, you know, that word kiss, you're supposed to follow that, K-I-S-S. -S. Keep it simple, saints. Right, right, right. 
That's the way I learned it. Matthew chapter 14, verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, and for those of you that like all the little technical things, that was probably about 3 o'clock in the morning because I think the, th the fourth watch was between 2 and 6 or something like that. So early in the morning, okay, around 3 or 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now let me just set this up because we're diving in right here. Um, does anybody know what just happened before this? What major event happened before this takes place? They f the feeding of 5,000. And that was just the men. They just counted the men. So if you figured the women and the kids, there could have been 10, 15, 20,000 people that were fed. Tremendous miracle from God. And the disciples were there. And they just witnessed all of this. And everybody was tired. And so Jesus had told the disciples, y'all, go. You know, he said, y'all because he was from southern Nazareth there. And he said, y'all go ahead and get in the boat and, and just go over. I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to go up to the mountain and pray a little bit and, and just talk to the Father about the day's events. And so they got in the boat, which they're familiar with. And as they go, they were out on the Sea of Galilee. And the thing about the Sea of Galilee is the mountain ranges around there get about 4,000 feet, but the Sea of Galilee is about 400 feet below the, the Mediterranean Sea. So it sets down there. We've been there. We've been out on the Sea of Galilee. What is interesting about it is because it's so low and because the mountain range is so high around it that that air can come through there and that cool air can come down off that mountain range, just rush down in, and this hot, humid air hits it. And man, it's just a, it's a perfect place for storms to come up just like that. Now, these were experienced fishermen, and they were out on their boat, so it looked good when they left, but this thing's only about five or six miles wide, and so they're out there. And so if you can take into mind... About nine hours, trust me, I've studied this out, they were struggling, rowing, and trying to get across the, the sea to the other side. They spent all this time, and they were getting pretty close, but, oh, it was horrible. So it says, um, let's go back to there, verse 26. When the disciples, oh, wait, I'm sorry, during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got, out, got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, what stands out to you about this story? What kind of jumps out? Peter walked on water. He let go of the boat. Got his eyes off Jesus and sunk. Anything else? Just throw it out here. We're just, your observations. Everybody agree with those three people? Didn't see anything else? They didn't believe until they saw the, calm the water. Good, Marta. Yes,
So he got that far by, he, like they, he was singing that old song, we've come this far by faith. <laughs> and then that was about it. Anything else? Are there any lessons that we can learn from this? Or have we learned everything there is to learn about this? Keep your eyes on Jesus. All right, there we go. There's a preacher. What other lessons could you learn? Stay focused. Any other lessons? Don't let the cares of the world pull you away. Step out. Be faithful. Okay, well, y'all got it, so we don't even need to talk about that. <laughs> Just want to make sure y'all had that one. And <laughs> Some things I observed as I went back over this, the Lord said, read that again, and I go, Lord, I know that story. I know it's, it's recorded in three of the Gospels, and I know Matthew's the only one that talks about Peter walking on the water, and I was telling the Lord what all I knew. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Tell the Lord what all you know. Yeah, that is, that's not much. But anyway... <laughs> The first thing that I get out of this is Jesus comes to us in the storms. Write that down. I did. Jesus comes to us in the storms of our life. When they left, everything was cool. Were they in, were they in the will of God being out there? Because it was, well, you know, if, you just, if you're in the will of God, bad things don't happen to you, and you won't go through storms in your life. Oh, Really? Well, Jesus told them to get in the boat and to go to the other side. And when they were doing what Jesus said to do, they got into the worst storm they'd ever been in. And these are guys that are experienced, and they go out there all the time. And they were afraid. He didn't say it was going to be easy. Yeah. So Jesus comes to us in the storms of our life. Even when we're in the center of God's will, storms will hit you. That's something that you ought to maybe mark down and know. You can be dead sinner in God's will and the storms can still hit you and try to blow you away. And it's not so much the boat in the water. Did you know that? I learned, I, I grew up on a lake, Lake Texoma, and I learned real quick. It's not so much the, the boat in the water. I used to get scared about it, but it's, what I really found out, it's the water in the boat. That, that's when you need to get worried. It's the water in the boat that will get you. Not so much the boat in the water. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, Isaiah says this, or, or God says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. So we have that promise. God wants you to know that today. He literally showed them that that day he came to his disciples. You know, the Lord might not come to us at the time that we think he should or, or the time that we want him to. Because he knows when we need him the most. And that doesn't sound like much, just saying that. But I've asked God a lot of times, where were you when I was there? He was on the mountain praying. He wasn't worried about it. So he doesn't always come to us when we think he should. Most of the because he knows when we need him the most. Some things we need to, we need to take care of ourselves. He's, hasn't he delegated to us authority? Now, how many people in here are, when you work in a supervisory capacity in a, in a sense, or you have people that you give instruction to or you delegate things to for them to get done, okay? 
Now, if you delegate, you don't mind giving them certain instructions. I mean, if they need, need to know how to do something, you want them to ask. But, I mean, once you've delegated, um, first of all, you shouldn't be going over there and doing their job if you delegated it to them, right? I mean, why should you be going and you delegate it to them, and then by the time they get ready to do it, you knock them out of the way, and you, well, let me, I'll fix it. So if you did that, you're just going to wear yourself out, and they're going to step back and say, well, fine. And then they won't ever really learn how to do it because they don't have any hands-on experience. They don't learn to be focused. They don't, they don't learn the seriousness of it. They don't, you know, because they've never had to do it. About the time they get ready to do it, that you delegate, you step in to do it. Well, that's not any good, right? The same thing with us. God has delegated to us dominion and authority. And he doesn't always just jump right in the middle when something starts happening. He's, he says, okay, I mean, I've given you everything you need. I've given it to you. Now then, do it. So there were some things that they needed to be doing out there on the lake when they came and they confronted a storm of life. And storms come. Those things happen. Storms happen. I know there's other versions of that, but my version is storms happen. And so they're going to happen. And they're going to keep on happening. And so, but we, we have everything that we need from the Lord to take care of those things. And so Jesus didn't come at the beginning or he didn't get in the boat with them when they left the shore. He let them go out there, and he, but he came to them when they needed him the most. He had waited until the boat had got as far from the shore as could be so they couldn't turn around and go back, and they were struggling to try to get to the other side. They were, as they say, in a heap of trouble. Now, really what Jesus, he was testing the disciples' faith, and he uh, had to do that by removing all of their props around them that they could lean on and trust in and everything. So, so a lot of times, you know, the Lord has to allow us to get to a place where we can't lean on anything else. That's why I don't ever get nervous about what doctors' reports say. You know, that just lets us know where we need to be and what they're saying until we get to the point of where when they say, I can't do anything else, then now then that's when we know that, okay, now then I'm trusting in God. Nobody else can do anything, so now we're trusting in, in him. Okay, another question on this is, we look at why he didn't come or go with them. Uh, why did he walk on water? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, why did he walk on water to them? Did he get to the other side? I like that. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm sorry, Tim. Well, there shouldn't be any mistaking who he was, you would think, but yet... That when they first saw him, they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost. One of the reasons, what I look, as I looked at that, this is what I wrote down, to show his disciples that the very thing they feared, this raging, roaring sea, was merely a set of steps for him to come to them. What they feared the most was simply an avenue for him to come to them, right where they were. Wow. You know, sometimes we fear things that we don't, you know, that we just, we get our eyes so focused on those things that we, then we don't recognize God in the midst of it. Because when he came, they, they were afraid and they thought he was a ghost, as we said a while ago. So they weren't, they weren't expecting him. They, I guess they weren't looking for him because if you're looking for something, you usually see what you're looking for, Right? 
I jotted this down along with that little note. Often we fear the difficult experiences of life, such as illness, loss of loved ones, the financial hardships, only to discover that these experiences can bring Jesus closer to us. Have you ever gone through anything difficult, a storm in your life, and found out that it actually brought you closer to the Lord? Hmm. My dad used to say, uh, you know, I wouldn't take nothing for the experiences, but I sure wouldn't pay to go through them again. You know, I don't want to go through them again. The other thing that we realize that we can learn, a lesson that we can learn from this story is, is that fear and faith cannot live in the same heart. Fear and faith cannot live in the same heart. So that brings us back, why didn't they recognize Jesus? They were afraid. Yeah, Bob? Coming across, right? They were, so th there was fear there. They thought they were about to die. And then here comes the death angel coming to get me. You know? So what were they? They were looking for death. They weren't looking for life. They were looking for the death angel, not the king of glory. They weren't looking for it. Now, you would think these guys that have been with him and they had just come through feeding 20,000 people would be be full of faith, wouldn't you? Of course. And we expect that out of ourselves. You know, uh, if, but if they would have been looking for him, they would have known instantly who he was when he showed up. But they didn't. They missed it. So, you know, the point was is that when he came walking on the water, he showed that he was God because God has control of all elements, you know, wind, waves, fire, all these things. And, you know, just like when God gave Moses that power to part the Red Sea or the priests when they put their foot in to the, sea, uh, to the River Jordan, it parted. And so there's power over those things. And so when Jesus walked, he was saying, okay, then you ought to recognize that I'm the Son of God. But they didn't. They were afraid, except for one person. Because, see, I, I think Peter got it. Now, Jesus had been saying, he'd, he'd tell the story. He said, the Son of Man comes to do such and such. And then he would say that he's the Son of God. And he would say, he, he would refer to himself as the Son of God and the Son of God and the Son of God. He'd been saying it, but they hadn't been saying it. They'd never really said it until a little bit later on. So Peter looks out, and Peter is the one that has something different in this, in this group. He says, if it's you, the Son of God, then let me come to you on the, on the water, controlling the water that I'm walking on too. So fear and faith can't dwell in the same heart because fear causes us to be blind to the fact of, of who Jesus is. Faith sparks and we'll be able to see him through faith. So Peter had at least had enough faith to begin to see that this is Jesus coming. Here's another lesson that I learned is... Um, since we're at the point of where Peter now is getting out on the water, to walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. Seems like a given, doesn't it? To walk on water, you got to get out of the boat. What's the boat? What's the boat? If this story is still there, if it's important, then that means we got a boat. What's your boat? Couch. Couch. Circumstances. The boat is our comfort zone. The boat is the known. 
I know the boat. It's my boat. I know that the boat floats. This is my comfort zone. This is what I know. And out there is the unknown. So to walk on water, to go into the unknown, you got to get out of the known. you got to get out of the comfort zone to get out into the danger zone. But it's not a danger zone if Jesus is there. It's just simply an avenue to come become outstanding. Now, in this whole situation, we're going to find out that there was a participator and there was some spectators. Who do you think the participator was? Peter. And the spectators were? So if the boat is the comfort zone, the known, what is the wind? Because when they saw the wind, they were afraid. The wind would represent then the unknown or the harsh conditions and the, the uh, adversity that comes against us. Water, in a sense, speaks of stuff overwhelming, being overwhelmed with, with water. So if you're going to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. If you're going to go above your circumstances, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. Are you with me on that? Okay, so now then, Peter's out, out of the boat. He's walking on water. What's the next lesson we learn? Don't doubt Jesus or your fear will drown you. Don't doubt him or your fear will drown you. It says there, but when he saw the wind, when Peter saw the wind, when he got back on the circumstances, when he got back on the, the unknown, he was afraid and, of course, this fear says, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. We're usually at the point of sinking when we cry out to the Lord. We're in that sinking situation when we're crying out to God when he says he was, and we're wondering why wasn't he here sooner because he was, he was expecting us to walk on this, on this water against the wind and the waves. And we see here also that Jesus, he reveals his divine supernatural nature by being in command of everything there. And, uh, you know, because the, the story ends there, it says that uh, the wind died down. So, so whenever Jesus and Peter got back in the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, what? Truly, you are the Son of God. Yeah, when he gets back in the boat. When he comes into my comfort zone, oh, yeah, Jesus, you're the Lord. <laughs> Truly, you are. They hadn't said it before, but this, they finally got it. Truly, you really are the Son of God. Wow, we just thought, you know, it was, it's, that was great. You know, God's working through you. just a man of God, but we know you were the Son of God. But if you're in control of the elements, then you must be God. You are the Son of God. We need to recognize his deity. Because we get into these situations and these circumstances and these storms of life and they are overpowering, they're overbearing and, they're, and we're being tossed and we're seeing them face to face and we're feeling the water blowing into our face and the wind about to tip us over. But we got to come out of that and see Jesus and his deity that he is the son of God, that he's above these things. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world what I was screaming when I came back to consciousness the third time, the last time, or the final, when I finally did, I guess, in CCU, except there was a respirator in my mouth, so I don't know if anybody heard me or not, but I know that 
principalities and powers heard me. Greater is he. He's the one. He's the son of God. Now, after helping Peter into the boat, Jesus took, the, you know, he took them on to the other side. They were all safe and everything. The disciples began to have this greater understanding of who Jesus was. And they had been told many, many times who he was. He had said it, but they just never had got it. So back in this situation here, let's look back at this for just a second. Who failed in, in this story? Who failed? The spectators. It's a setup question. Because usually Peter is the one that's portrayed as failing because we, it's written out there, you know. I think they didn't write it in the other two because they were ashamed that they didn't get out of the boat. It's only found in Matthew, you know, and he was writing down everything, but it's not, we don't find it in the other Gospels that, that Peter got out of the boat and walked on water because I think they were ashamed, like, well, we should have been out there too. <laughs> so Jesus walked on water, he got in our boat and everything was all cool, and we got to the other side. <laughs> That's the way I'm telling it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But who failed? Peter, when he began to sink, we see that. That's clear, but... Did he fail or was he really, did he have the victory? I think the ones, the biggest failures were the ones that kept sitting in the boat. They were spectators and not a participator. They weren't outstanding. Peter's outstanding. He's really outstanding on the water. I mean, but he was outstanding in the situation and they were bystanders. What do you think God wants out of us? See, there's two, there's two views of life. There's an outstanding view and there's a bystanding view. There are two views of, of, and two kinds of people in this life. I jotted down some things. Some see life as a possession to be carefully guarded. They are spectators by bystanding. Others see life as a fantastic, wild, explosive gift. And they are participators. Outstanding. They become outstanding. The church has an abundance of spectators and few participators. Does anybody know who Bud Wilkerson is? All right, there we go. The football, uh, what do you call it? The trivia expert. Tell us who Bud Wilkerson was, since you're from Iowa. And he was a great coach of anywhere. <laughs> he happened to be at Oklahoma. Steve is exactly right. He was the winningest coach in all history at the time, and, and they interviewed Bud Wilkerson, and they said, tell us the secret, you know, or tell us what's so great about football. What has football contributed to the American society? And he says, in that dry sense of humor he has, he says, absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, that will ruin an interview, I can tell you that. <laughs> that will spoil an interview. And they said, what do you mean? He said, because it's all backwards. He said, you got 22 guys out on the field that need rest and 80,000 people in the stands that need exercise. <laughs> he said, it's all backwards. And, you know, church is kind of like that, too. You know, we got, you know, a little bit of the people are participating. Everybody else is spectating. And that's really the way it was back in the day, days of Jesus. When he needed somebody to step up, where were they? Hmm. Everybody was spectating. They were watching the crucifixion. So, you know, there's that spectator theology, I guess I'll call it. And uh, then there's participator theology. It, a participator is, is a producer. You know, Jesus said, 
Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. What does a fisherman do? He catches fish. Now, he'll eat them too, but, but you know, their job was they caught fish, they brought them to the market, they sold, the market, sold them at the market, people consumed them. So there's consumers and producers, right? Producers and consumers. Nothing wrong with that when it is in the right scale, but God needs producers in the body of Christ. And consumers sit and expect others to serve them or provide for them, believing by seeing it happen. They waited. They, when when the, the 11 saw Jesus get into the boat, they, oh, truly you are the Son of God. They were consumers in a sense. In a sense. You know, they had faith without works, and that was dead faith. A producer is faith works when you work your faith. In a sense that you've got to put it to work. I mean, yeah, we have faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word. But if you don't put it to work, then it's not going to work, right? What good is it if you don't put it out there? And so Jesus saw something different in Peter. In fact, that's why he said there in Mark 16, he says, uh, I'll tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. On the rock, meaning the foundation, Peter had a revelation because when Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? And, and they said, well, some say Elijah, some say well, and all this stuff. And he said, but what about you? And here they were again, confronted with this. What are we going to say? He says he's the son of God. I don't know. You think he's the son of God? This was a little earlier. And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, which had to be the son of God. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you got it, bingo, we have a winner. And on that foundation of what you believe and how you believe and how you approach it, that's what I'm going to build my church on, on the foundation of, of the revelation of knowing that I am the Son of God. You have faith. And Jesus went on to say, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Peter. You didn't get, you know, flesh and blood didn't do it. You're not a consumer. You didn't get it by consuming something. You got it by producing and activating your faith, and then you really saw it. It came as a revelation. You know, you're not going to get a revelation from God unless you get in a situation or you're out there activating your faith. I've never just been sloughing off and whatever and get some powerful revelation from God. It's been when something was happening. There was either, you know, or, you know, really seeking God, and that's when it happens. When I was out there being a producer, I don't catch fish unless I go fishing or go to Kroger's. I still don't catch them. I just have to buy them, right? So you've got to get a hook in the water. And then you've got to believe that, that something's going to get in that, on that thing or get into a net as they would throw the nets out. It takes faith, really, to be a, a fisherman. You put on the bait, you've got to believe that that bait's the right bait. You throw it out there, you've got to believe that that's the right spot in all this water. And you got to believe that that fish will come on there and that you're going to, when he does, that you can snag him and get him. And then once you get him on the line, you got to get him in the boat. Hmm. Daryl told me the other day, caught the first fish of his life. He'd been fishing, but he caught the first one, right? And it was, he caught two of them that big. <laughs> See, right, that, that big and that big. He didn't tell me that. He showed me the picture. Uh, there's, a, there's a man of experience right there. He decided to take a picture of it so that, that way he didn't have to let the picture do, do all the talking. What kind of Christian do you think God wants us to be? An outstanding Christian or a bystanding Christian? 
when Jesus told Peter on this rock, on this foundation of this revelation that I am the Messiah, and on the foundation of who you are, how you approach this, of being a producer, activating your faith, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build this living organism that puts people together to do something. You know, we're never called to sit. We're called to go. He says, go in all the world. He's always telling us, go, 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 go. Why do you think he had to tell us so much? Because we're sitting, sitting, sitting. And I noticed that the first two letters in God are go. The first three letters in Satan are sat. So, I mean, I don't know, that's a little illustration for you or not, but, you know, we need to be going. <laughs> and guess who's up here standing? <laughs> I'm not outstanding, but... So God, he wants his church to be outstanding. He wants his church to be producers, to be a participator with him. You know, Paul said that we are, we are participators in a sense of that, the way the Greek word brings down, with Christ and with you. We're all participating together on this thing, and that's how you bring fruit. Jesus said, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, producers of men, men and women of souls for the kingdom. And he needs some fishermen today, fishers of men. He wants us to be producing souls. People, this is what I'm hearing from the Lord, you know, We've sat long enough. We had that message a few weeks back. You've stayed at this mountain long enough. And he's crying out. People say, well, what? Uh, nothing happened on uh, September the 13th or the 14th. Praise God. He, he is, you know, refrained maybe for a little while. There's this period through here. We've got some, uh, some other things coming up. But you know what? Praise God. The, uh, you know, we're to pray. Maybe God said, okay. Somebody got serious about this. I think more people were praying. They're finally starting to get, kind of starting to get our attention a little bit and thought, well, we better pray. Even talking about it on, in various levels and higher levels and, and on the news and various things like that. Here it's reporting. I mean, when you got blood moons and you got all this stuff happening that hadn't happened for, you know, some of it, you know, a couple thousand years, well, it ought to get somebody's attention. So God's saying, okay, now let's see what happens. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. Where are we? I think we're right in the point of where God's watching to see. He's watching to see what we're going to do. You say, doesn't he know? He knows, but he has to be like Jesus when he was still on the mountain. I've got to get far enough out shore, out to shore to where there's no props to turn back to. Now, everybody took a deep breath and said, okay, well, let's go buy that car now. Let's go do the, do the. Yeah, well, I, I think I might wait a little bit. You're not to the other side of the shore yet. We're not to the other side of the shore yet. We're in this year that's coming, this Jewish year. And so anyway, I, I'll talk more about that at some other time. But he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So he wants us to be winning souls and we put it off because we get in our comfort zone and we don't feel comfortable doing that let me tell you if you just simply see a need in somebody's life and ask god to help you meet that you'll open the door witnessing is easy it's easy 
You know, we never, I've never had anybody at all, when we were doing the hurricane relief and stuff, and we'd help, with, you know, clean up their house and their mess and all this restoration and stuff, at the end, we'd, we'd pray with them and uh, ask them if it was okay to pray with them. Oh, yes, yeah, sure. And then we'd ask them if they'd accepted Christ as their Savior. Some of them had, some of them hadn't. And so if they hadn't, we'd lead them to the Lord. It was easy. Give them a Bible. It was easy. Why? Because we were there to meet a need. Not in their front with a 20-pound Schofield beating them in the head saying, you better turn. You better get saved. Oh, really? No? No. He comes with love and compassion. So if we'll watch for it, the people that you work with, if you'll, when you see that they're having some difficulties, just let them know, you know, I'm going to be praying about that. I'm going to be praying about that. Oh, really? And you do that. You pray and you watch and you watch for the opportunity. And when it's time to step out of the boat, step out of the boat. Maybe just even tell them that you're going to pray about it might even be a little risky for you. Jesus, when, after this he says, uh, he, he told them in John 20, he said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He sent us just like him. He was a producer. He was outstanding. And we are to produce fruit. We're to go and bring forth fruit, fruit that will remain. <laughs> he told us to be a producer of fruit. Be fruits producers, <laughs> fruitful, right? And so that's what we're to do, not just consuming of it. And then he, uh, uh, verse 22, he says, and uh, with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He gave us the power to go and do it. Not only did he tell us to do it and commission us to do it, set us apart with authority to do it, but he then gave us the power to be able to do it. You don't have to worry about witnessing. You don't have to worry about praying for somebody. Nobody minds a little word of prayer, and a little word of prayer moves mountains. Hallelujah. For three years, the disciples had basically been spectators. They followed Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They traveled with him. You know, they prayed with him. They studied at his feet. They, they worked with him. And then came the cross. Now he's risen. And he appears to his disciples saying, peace be with you. Goes on and then he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The same way the Father sent me, I'm sending you. The same job I had, you got it now. I'm delegating this to you. Go and do it. Just as I came and brought forth fruit, you go and bring forth fruit. And he also said, greater things than these shall you do. Because he's going to the Father. He's there as our advocate, making intercession for us, interceding when Satan comes with his lies and his accusations. Jesus is there praying for us. Plus, the Father has sent the Holy Spirit here to empower us to be producers. The, the time has come, basically what he was saying is, when he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, he's basically saying it's time to stop being spectators and be participators. It's time to stop, you know, being a bystander, and it's time to be outstanding right now. Stop talking and go fishing, basically. You know, <laughs> go get something. We need to do this. And then he breathes on them and, and he gives them the Holy Spirit to empower them. He gives them the power and the strength of the Word of God to, uh, to, uh, and, and the power of God to go with them and to open the way and to, to anoint them to be able to, to say what they needed to say. And he says, and, and these, these few men, these, these, these disciples 
that were spectators. It says that later on in Acts, the 17th chapter says, these are those who have turned the world upside down. So they went from spectating to participating. They went from being bystanders to being outstanding for him. Now, you know, how, how do you become an outstanding Christian then? How can we become an outstanding church? What do we need to do? Well, you know, as some of you might have seen, William Arthur Ward has put out a four, uh, four steps to, of achievement. He says, prepare prayerfully, proceed positively, pursue persistently, and praise perpetually. I'd say that's, that's pretty good. We want to be outstanding? Then prepare prayerfully. Proceed positively. And then pursue persistently and praise perpetually. Always praising Him. There's so much that God wants to do that uh, can be seen only after we do it. So much that he wants to do and to show and to make visible to mankind, but he will only do it when we do it, when he does it through us, when we take a step and go do it. God wants to move on the face of the earth. How is he going to do it? Through us and his Holy Spirit in us. Do you think your actions invoke God's activity? Look back over your life and think what you're doing. Does it invoke his activity? Him working through you? Maybe sometimes, maybe on occasion. How would you like that all the time? That your actions invoke his presence to work through you. In him we live and move and have our being. Is that true? It ought to be. In him we live and move and have our being. That's, that he, he's given to us that, that, and we can declare it by faith, but then we ought to make it a reality in, in, in our practice. God's waiting for someone to trust him enough to act on his word. Just like Jesus was waiting for someone to trust him enough to get out of the boat. He's waiting for you. He's waiting for me to trust him enough to act on his word to be active, to be a participator, to be outstanding for him. Get out of the boat. That's what he's saying. Get out of the boat. God is in the business of empowering people. He gives us ability, passion. He gives us guidance. You know, he challenges us to step uh, forth in faith, to go forward in, in the faith that he gives to us. It's a challenge to do it. Not that we can just say, oh, we've learned all these things. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They glory in how much they knew and all the scriptures that they knew. But Jesus said, you're just whitewashed sepulchers. You got dead bones inside. You look good on the outside. But, you know, what you know hasn't, done, hasn't affected anything that you're doing. Well, what's being said about us? What can he say about us? What you know, is it affecting what you do? And then all the while, he promises to be with us. Listen to a couple of things I jotted down here. The believer in God's image and the believer in God's image and likeness has a divine and royal destiny to exercise dominion and authority in this world. If not us, who? God honors the dominion that He has given to us, and He waits for us to initiate His will, which He has already made known to us through prayer before he will enter the earthly arena. He waits for us to initiate his will. And we should already discover it through prayer, 
He waits for us to initiate it before he enters the earthly arena. So who, has, who needs to be moving? Who needs to be outstanding? Us. We do. In Ephesians chapter 3, in the Amplified Version, listen to this. This is his purpose. It says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 from the Amplified, the purpose is that through the church, the complicated, many-sided wisdom of God in all of its infinite variety and innumerable aspects might now be made known to the angelic rulers and authorities, principalities and powers in the heavenly sphere. This is in accordance with the terms of the eternal and timeless purpose which he has realized and carried into effect in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. He has a purpose for the church. And he wants to demonstrate his many-sided and complex will and through us. He wants to work it through us. We need to have boldness. We just dare to have boldness. In fact, verse 12 there in Ephesians 3, it says, in whom became, speaking of Jesus, in whom became our flesh in him. We dare to have the boldness or the courage and confidence, it says in the Amplified, of free access to him, freedom without fear. We dare to have the boldness. Do you dare to have the boldness that is necessary to be an outstanding Christian? That ought to be your prayer every day. You know, the kind of risk that God respects is fueled by a passion for his purpose and a willingness to submit our lives to his will. A passion for his purpose and a willingness to submit to him. I think Peter had a passion for the purpose of God. You know, Jonathan did. He knew that the, the will of God for them was to kill Philistines. So he and his armor bearer went out to the edge. There's a big cliff, thorns on this side, mud slick on the other side. On the other side of this big gorge were Philistines. So he says to his armor bearer, hey, I got an idea. All of those other 600 men that are sitting over there with my dad and his sword, they're spectators. You want to be a participator? And the arm, I'm paraphrasing this, you know. The arm bearer says, hey, whatever you got in your mind, I'm with you. Let's go. Let's get her done. And so he says, let's go out here and show ourselves to these Philistines. And if they say, come on over here and, and see what you got, he says, then we'll know that's a sign from God. <laughs> then go over there and kill them. Just me and you with one sword. Okay, let's go get them. I think they were young. <laughs> and so they step out on this little clearing area, and the Philistines, oh, look, what's crawling out of their holes. It's those Israelites. Won't you come over here? We'll show you what real men are. Again, I'm paraphrasing. So, okay, they climbed down through all the thorn bushes and everything else. They could have said, well, we can't because there's thorns here and mud there, so we would come fight you, but we can't today. Sorry. You come over here, we'll show you something. <laughs> they climbed down through the thorns and everything. They got up through the mud slide and <laughs> climbed up. And it says, it defines it, Jonathan says, hand and foot. He was climbing up. Man, I'd be wore out just before I even got down. Not to talk about trying to go up. And it says that when they got to the top, it says that Jonathan began to kill Philistines, because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Kill Philistines. Kill Philistines in front and the armor bearer behind him. And it says within a size of about a half acre, not even quite the parking lot out there, they already killed like 22 of them. And it says, and then 
Then the power of God came and put fear in the hearts of all the Philistines, and they began to just take off. Then, after they'd already climbed down, climbed up, killed 22 with one sword, <laughs> you know, the armor bearer, I guess, <laughs> he's just, I guess he's biting on a hand or something. <laughs> Give me that sword. <laughs> we only got two in all of Israel. I'm going to take your sword, you know. What kind of risk did these guys take? Oh, my goodness. Talk about a risk taker. You think God was with him? Yes, look at that. He was willing to risk failure. Peter was willing to risk failure by stepping out of the boat. He was willing to risk embarrassment. Like, oh, yeah, Peter got out of the boat. Yeah, that's what I thought. Sung like a rock, man. That's his name, Rock. Hey, Rocky, how's it down there in the water? He was willing to risk the embarrassment. He was willing to risk failure. Willing to, willing to risk his life. What are you willing to risk? In 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 4, verse 12. If you want to read this, I'm going to read it from the NIV because it has a word in it that I like. And it talks about, you know, this type of passion that God wants is it's something that's, or the risk, the risk that God wants us to take is fueled by this passion. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Dear friends, this is Peter, the guy that got out of the boat writing later on. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, when he shows up, right when we need him. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as, as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. People say, oh yeah, these are Christians, one of those radical Christians. Then you say, praise God. They know who, who I am. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin. This is a prophetic word from God right now in this day and hour that we're living in. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's what's happening right now. God's looking through, and he's looking at his church, and he's cleaning house. And he's looking for outstanding Christians to do something for. You'll see it here in a minute. I guess the question ought to be is, how much of a risk taker are you? How much of a participator are you? Is there any specific thing that God's asking you to be risky on? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Don't get nervous. We're close to closing. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and goodness. Well, all righty then. I don't know whose that is, but thank you very much. <laughs> His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him 
who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. How do you escape this stuff that's coming on the face of the earth to try everyone that's on the face of the earth? I call it rapture. He said, so when you're a participator with me, you're going to get a reward. Outstanding athletes, outstanding people get rewards, right? And you get a reward not for believing on him, that's a gift, but for doing what he's called you to do when you're faithful over that. Paul said, therefore, he said, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. Therefore, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me and not to me only, but for all of those who are longing and loving his appearing, those that are participating in him doing what he called him to do, being outstanding. And so Peter says, he says, through these, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich Welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Come on in, not you wicked and slowful servant. I could put you in charge of things and you didn't even get off the couch to do it. Hello. Let's turn our cell phones off. He says he has a rich reward, a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom. He goes on to say, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. So even though you know these things, I'm taking Peter's side today and I'm reminding you of these things. We need to know. Will you bow your head with me this morning?